All right. Uh, we are uh, we are started. Uh, this is going to be audio only. Uh, sorry about that. Um, we'll probably try to do a video one uh, when I do it tomorrow. I think I'm going to have David Griscom on tomorrow to talk about his article about the Abbott O'Rourke collection and, um, you know, why uh, Abbott having seized all this extra gubernatorial power is uh, really bad for working class people in Texas. Uh, I don't know if it'll show his video. Um, you know, this is still on the beta stage, uh, not beta males, beta stage of uh, of development, the uh, the video feature on Colin. But anyway, we'll try that out uh, tomorrow afternoon. But meanwhile, um, I am going to talk today about an article that I wrote for the Daily Beast. I actually... Uh, I actually wrote it uh, a little over a week ago, uh, but then it kept getting pushed back because of uh, election stuff, um, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, so, you know, yeah, I'd, I'd actually filed it just before the election, and then it um, ended up getting delayed and delayed, but it's out now, which I'm very happy about. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, and I want to kind of talk through it and, you know, then take some calls. You guys know how this goes. Uh, get in the queue anytime, although I'll probably wait till I've kind of talked through this a little bit before I start taking any calls if anybody does want to call into that. So I start out the article by noting that the UN General Assembly just earlier this month voted for the 30th consecutive year to condemn America's economic embargo on Cuba. Yeah, that is the 30th year in a row. Uh, that means they did this in 2021. They did it in 2020, 2019, 18, 17, 16, 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2000, 99, 98, 97, 96, 95, 94, and 93. They, uh, every single one of those years, the UN General Assembly has begged us to end the embargo against uh, the nation of Cuba. Uh, and these don't tend to be close votes. Uh, this year, it certainly was not, to put it mildly. So Brazil, and remember, this is Bolsonaro's Brazil, right? This is this is Brazil where the you know UN ambassador is appointed by uh, Jair Bolsonaro, like right-wing extremist virgin on, you know, somebody who would be actually accurately called semi-fascist. Um, you know, somebody who, uh, one of the first things he did was, uh, when he was elected, was he kicked out all the Cuban doctors from the country, is a rabid anti-communist who's uh, gone so far as to praise many times uh, Brazil's former military dictatorship and say the only thing they did wrong was they didn't, uh, they didn't kill more leftists. Uh, and even so, they weren't quite willing to go so far as to vote no, uh, Brazil, Bolsonaro's Brazil, abstained on the UN resolution to condemn the embargo on Cuba. Ukraine, which for obvious reasons is 100% reliant on American goodwill right now, um, we have um, refreshed the coffers so many times there that like the uh, US military aid has, has, has been like many times what Ukraine's entire military budget uh, was like last year, um, Ukraine abstained. And those are the only two countries that abstained. Brazil abstained, Ukraine abstained. The only two countries in the world 
that voted no uh, were the United States itself and Israel. That leaves 185 other countries that all voted yes. They all voted to beg the United States to lift the embargo. So it's pretty amazing that we're continuing to this flagrantly ignore the will of the entire planet, almost, <laughs> except the U.S. and Israel and uh, you know Brazil and Ukraine abstaining, uh, the entire planet on this question. Now, of course, you can say General Assembly resolutions don't mean anything. Uh, they can't be enforced without action from the Security Council. Um, and I, I say in the article that uh, the fact that only the Security Council has real power in the UN is kind of an on-the-nose metaphor for how power is distributed in the real world, that you know the great powers have permanent seats simply for being great powers. But we should still take note of the scale of the global condemnation of the embargo. 185 to 2. That was the uh, that was the vote, um, and you know when you you think about that, right? Like, look, you can say, yeah, but that doesn't always reflect uh, public opinion. Some of those countries are monarchies or dictatorships, and that's certainly true. But a one hundred and eighty-five to two vote means that never, nearly every democracy in the world voted for the resolution. So. You know, it's really hard to argue, um, and it's really hard to find counter evidence to use to argue that this is not a accurate reflection of global public opinion. The overwhelming majority of the planet wants us to end this policy. And it's not hard to see why the overwhelming majority of the planet wants us to end this policy. The embargo has had devastating effects on the Cuban population. Now, there are a number of ways that people uh, will respond to this point and try to say, no, actually, it hasn't been that bad, whatever. Uh, some of them there's some truth to, some of them there's almost no truth to, but let's kind of go through these one at a time. Now, something that is true is that during the Cold War, the embargo by Cuba's largest natural trading partner uh, was balanced to some extent by the patronage of the Soviet Union, right? That's true. But the collapse of the USSR at the beginning of the 90s led to a devastating crisis, uh, euphemistically referred to by Cuban authorities as the special period, like everybody was riding bicycles, you know, because they, they couldn't afford to you know, put gas in their cars. Um, and that was pretty brutal. Uh, when Hugo Chavez's Venezuela was riding high in the 2000s, Venezuelan subsidized oil. Uh, and other forms of aid, uh, I think, were an alternative way for Cuba to make up for some of the effects of the U.S. embargo. Certainly not everything, to put it mildly. But also, to put it mildly, these days, Venezuela has its own problems. They're not in a position to help like they once were. So, where does that leave Cuba? Um, and, and this is really a pretty grim picture. Uh, the the more you kind of kind of look at this and, and think about it, right? So uh, I noted the article, Cuba has a track record of sending doctors and medical equipment all over the world to help people in need. Uh, critics of that policy deride it as a way of building global goodwill for an undemocratic regime. But, uh, you know, I, I, I say the article as a citizen of a nation that all too often spreads its influence around the world with cruise missiles, drone assassinations, economic sanctions, invasions, occupations, and military coups, 
I have trouble getting too mad at Cuba for sending doctors to help people who need help. Um, and even many Cubans with criticisms of their regime are rightly proud of the country's healthcare system. Cuba has one of the best uh, doctor to patient ratios on the entire planet, and they fared uh, way better even during the worst of COVID uh, than comparable nations when they reopened to tourism. Uh, the COVID rate started climbing higher. There was a uh, since I was back in, uh, you know, my wife and I were back in Michigan for a lot of the pandemic. Um, but uh, a, a sort of morbid game that I would play sometimes would be that I would compare the number of COVID deaths just in the county that I come from in Michigan to the entire nation of Cuba. And for a long time, Cuba uh, was way behind in that, right? You know, Cuba had way fewer deaths than Ingham County, Michigan. Um, and again, once they reopened for tourism, that changed, but even still, right? I mean, the, the rate is just like nothing like the, uh, the same thing. And you can say, okay, well, that's a, you know, county that's around all these other places, whatever. It's different from an island. But look, if we're just going to do islands and we want to like pull a lot of cultural factors into alignment, you can compare Cuba to Puerto Rico, um, you know, which, which is, you know, part of the United States, uh, you know, in, in a sort of strange colonial way. And, um, and you know, you're way better off uh, being Cuban than Puerto Rican than, uh, in terms of your chances of avoiding COVID uh, before the vaccine. So Cuba, uh, you know, has a lot to be proud of about the healthcare system. Uh, they have one of the best doctor to patient ratios on the planet. Uh, and uh, they, you know, fared uh so yeah they as i said they fared better during the worst of covid but no matter how many doctors they have the problem is the patients all too often have to go without medicine uh because of all of these shortages that they've been having i mean people will remember from like a year ago uh when there were all these riots in cuba uh because uh because of those shortages you know i, I wrote about that in uh in jack at the time talked about it in the main show on youtube um, and, you know, medical shortages, uh, have been, uh, have been a big part of that overall picture. All right. So you can, um, this is, uh, you know, this is, this is dated, this is last year. Right. But I mean, like this, you know, the, the situation has not changed as fundamentally as uh, you'd like to see. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this article from, uh, from Reuters, uh, that, um, you know, talks, um, you know, that talks about, uh, you know, about uh, medical supplies, uh, the, uh, now, you know, does note that the, um, that uh, one of, um, you know, one of the measures Cuban government took in response to the unrest last year was to allow travelers to bring in medicine, food, and sanitary products without paying import duties in the two weeks following the move, travelers brought in 112 tons of such goods via Havana International Airport. Volunteers welcomed the move since impact was limited, given the few flights off operating to Cuba after the government restricted them due to COVID-19. Uh, but the biggest uh, diaspora communities in Florida, they went down from 50 flights uh, United States out of Cuba to, uh, to three. Uh, and uh, those flights were booked up until the next year. Many volunteers had to fly via Madrid 
uh, where there were more flights, uh, which they noted as an absurd and expensive trip to deliver humanitarian aid. Okay, so this this takes us to a couple of more um, uh, excuses that people make for the embargo and say, no, 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 it's not really the embargo. That like that's not even a big factor. Um, but I don't really buy any of these arguments, right? So we're often told these problems can't be blamed on U.S. policy because the rest of the world still trades with Cuba. But this is misleading in multiple ways that I noted in the article. First, the embargo obviously makes it more difficult, even with these tightly constrained humanitarian loopholes we were just talking about from the Reuters article, for Cuba to get, for example, any medical equipment that the rest of the world gets from, guess where, the United States. Uh, American you know, manufacturers right, can't just like ship things to Cuba in a normal way. Uh, at the very least, that's a much sort of uh, narrower loophole, and it's harder to do that. Um, you know, what Americans think about the embargo, uh, oftentimes what we're thinking about is that it's nice as Cuban cigars and Havana Club rum, but Cubans are much more likely to notice uh, things like the medical equipment issue or the fact that the embargo has in the past even led to Americans being uh, prosecuted for selling Cuba, in my favorite example of uh, one of these prosecutions, water purification equipment. Um so a second way in which this talking point, oh, well, the rest of the world trades with Cuba, so it doesn't matter that its largest natural trading partner doesn't. Uh, second way I think that that's misleading is that various U.S. laws intended to tighten the effect of the embargo actually punish foreign companies for doing business in Cuba. Uh, the you know, Part of why Cubans often call the embargo the blockade. Um, third and most importantly, and I, and I really kind of circle and, uh, and underline uh, this part, Apologists for the embargo really want to have it both ways. Um, on the one hand, uh, they say that, uh, you know, they want to say that the inefficiencies of Cuban system, which don't get me wrong, I'm certainly not denying the existence of those inefficiencies. Those can be very real. But they want to say that the inefficiencies of Cuba's system are the only reason for the nation's shortages and misery, and anybody who's even talking about the embargo is, is just engaged in distraction, all this stuff. On the other hand, though, they insist that the embargo shouldn't be lifted because it's such an important tool for pressuring the Cuban government into liberalizing and democratic reforms. Well, guys, which one is it? Um, if right-wing anti-communists in Miami are so confident that things would be just as bad in Cuba without a U.S. embargo, why are they so unwilling to put this theory to the test? Huh? All right, great. So look, if you think that it's just the inefficiencies in uh, you know Cuba's, sure, very flawed uh, version of state socialism, if you think that that's the only factor, the embargo is a part of it, then why not lift the embargo? Then things would still be just as bad and the, uh, the government wouldn't be able to blame the embargo anymore. What do you have to lose, guys, if you really believe it? Um, so I say in the article, the idea under, underpinning the imposition of the embargo 60 years ago that Cubans would take their economic frustrations out of the government. Uh, you can find um, documents from the Kennedy administration saying like exactly that very explicitly. You know, we want Cubans to be hungry, so they'll, they'll revolt against Castro. So the idea they take these frustrations out of the government was always questionable. People under siege from more powerful neighbors often responded exactly the opposite way, with defiant displays of national unity. 
In any case, the idea that all the humanitarian costs of the embargo are balanced out by the all-important goal of promoting democracy and human rights in Cuba becomes incoherent the moment the Cuba policy is placed within the overall framework of American foreign policy. Now, don't get me wrong, as uh, uh, former President Obama would say, let me be clear. Uh, as a democratic socialist, I care about freedom of speech, independent labor unions, multi-party elections. And I absolutely, I think Cuba should be criticized for not having those things. But get real. Does anyone anywhere seriously believe that the human rights situation in Cuba is worse than, or frankly, even anywhere close to being as bad as the, say, the human rights situation in China? Never mind, for God's sake, the human rights situation in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So, for example, Cuba just passed a popular referendum uh, that, among many other good changes to the country's family code, uh, gave gay couples on the island uh, equal rights in the spheres of marriage and adoption. Um, and maybe it's worth circling back to that at the, at the end, because I actually did write something specifically about that for Jacobin. I don't think I ever did a call in on um, but one of the things I noted, the Jacobin article that I did about the referendum result, uh, the, the article uh, was, uh, was called uh, Cuba's Gay Rights Vote is a Victory for Socialist Values. And one of the things I noted in that article is that, look, you can, you can make the argument that the democratic legitimacy of this election is questionable because only one side had access to state media. So you could argue it wasn't like a fair election in that sense. Uh, although the Catholic Church, which is a major non-government institution in Cuba, was very openly opposed to these changes to the family code and urging people to vote no. But even so, you could argue that it was unfair because, you know, the, the government supported the referendum, you know, sort of had a monopoly on the media. But even the regime's harshest critics don't actually seem to be alleging that the results were falsified. Uh, it seems like everybody's pretty much acknowledging that, yeah, this was a, this was a fair, you know, this was at least a fairly counted vote. Um, and this, again, uh, it changed the family code in ways that, you know, make it more equal for the rights of men and women uh, in heterosexual relationships. And it also gives gay couples equal rights in marriage and adoption to straight couples, which is remarkable progress from where Cuba was, obviously, back in the 60s and 70s, if you know anything about that you know, the Mario boat lift and all of that. Uh, but that's where Cuba is now, right? Cuba, the country who we say its human rights situation is so bad, we have to keep this embargo forever, no matter how much it makes ordinary Cubans suffer. By contrast, homosexuality in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia is a death penalty offense. Now, anybody who's visited Cuba, I have visited Cuba, which had an academic conference there several years ago, uh, spent about a week there, uh, and I certainly observe this. Uh, this is very common from what I've, I've heard from other people who visited the island. Um, anyone who's visited Cuba knows that ordinary Cubans are hardly worried about being swept up by the secret police for griping about the regime, even to foreign strangers. Right? Nobody seems to really hesitate about that. Now, that doesn't mean that the lack of a free press or multi-party elections isn't objectionable. It is. But it does make it more than a little absurd to be told that ordinary Cubans have to be ground down into the dust decade after decade with this uh, crushing economic embargo for the sake of promoting democracy, even as the United States partners with far more despotic governments elsewhere. 
And again, look at the role the U.S. has played in the uh, Saudi war in Yemen, or just the sort of general way that the United States has propped up the kingdom for uh, many decades, you know, in numerous ways, right? I mean, the, the Gulf War, right? Iraq War round one at, in uh, the beginning of the 90s, uh, before it was Desert Storm, it was Desert Shield, which was about protecting, you know, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia in case Saddam, you know, turned his guns on them. Um, and again, obviously, the United States economy is very hard to separate from the economy of China, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so on and so on and so on, as a friend of mine would put it. Now, to be sure, the fact that U.S. policy is inconsistent doesn't necessarily mean that, that inconsistency should be resolved in the direction that I would advocate. Saying that it's incoherent is consistent with saying, oh, we should just have embargoes on all these places. Uh, perhaps the U.S. should hermetically seal off its economy from those of China, Saudi Arabia, and numerous other nations with human rights records vastly worse than Cuba's. Uh, of course, the economic consequences of that would be devastating for ordinary Americans. But hey, if you really believe the promotion of democracy is worth that kind of suffering uh, by ordinary people, why should only foreigners be the ones who have to bear the brunt of that suffering? Uh, now, obviously, I don't think any of that. I wouldn't advocate that in any of those cases. But a deeper problem here is that, uh, as I noted in that Jacobin article that I wrote last year when the riots were happening and a lot of Miami-based politicians were actually calling for U.S. intervention, regime change in Cuba, the idea that if the United States and Miami-based Gusano anti-communists got their way, Cuba's often flawed and dysfunctional model of state socialism would therefore be replaced with a prosperous and flourishing liberal democracy is a little hard to square with observable reality. Take neighboring Haiti, a country that has been thoroughly shaped by U.S. intervention. We were talking about this on the main show on, um, on YouTube last night, um, but you know, I wrote something for Compact about it, actually, Shortly after the Yarvin debate, um, you know, the Sorab had asked if I wanted to write something, and you know, and I was thinking, you know, thinking about it. But after I debated Yarvin, I was like, yeah, now I definitely do, because Yarvin was so full of shit about Haiti in that debate that he wanted to blame it on, you know, national character, culture, or frankly, race. Sounds like what he was saying, even though he was a little bit slippery about that. But look, I mean, when Haiti um, made its uh, you know, slave, successful slave revolution um, and threw off slavery and French colonialism at the uh, dawn of the 19th century, uh, they ended up having to agree to get France to leave them alone to, to pay reparations to the former slave owners, right? The opposite of the kind of reparations people argue about now. And that debt during a, uh, the first U.S. occupation of Haiti in the 1930s uh, what was left of that debt was transferred to U.S. Bank, and Haiti still had to keep paying it. And uh, that wasn't completely paid off until 1947. Uh, and in between finally getting out from the burden of that debt and the uh, the Duvalier regime being installed, there were like maybe 10 years, uh, the Duvaliers are in power for decades, absolutely despotic regime. Uh, right-wing dictatorship that the United States uh, supports, you know, with, with you know, Tom Tom Toot, death squads, all that stuff, right? 
as uh, as a way, you know, which the United States supports for standard Cold War anti-communist reasons. Uh, and then finally, the Duvaliers are, are uh, you know, like baby doc, right? The, the son who inherits the dictatorship uh, is uh, is is overthrown by popular revolt. And there's some democratic elections. Jean-Bertrand Aristide is the first uh, democratically elected president of Haiti. In the beginning of the 90s, you know, there is dispute about whether the company knew what was going to happen in advance. But uh, certainly a lot of the people involved in the coup, it's a matter of public record, were at this point were on the CIA payroll. Uh, the United States does, to be fair, eventually... Um, uh, the United States does, to be fair, uh, restore Aristide uh, after that uh, under Clinton. Uh, but then fast forward to 2004, the United States is openly removing Aristide. You know, like literally he is kidnapped and escorted out of the country by U.S. Marines in 2004. And in, uh, in the aftermath of that, uh, there's uh, like, uh, you know, there is, you know, like several elections afterwards, uh, Lavalas, which is Aristide's party, isn't even allowed to participate. Uh, the uh, the you know most recent elected president of Haiti was assassinated by people who seem to have a lot of Miami connections, uh, and uh, and you know whatever happened there to quote the Sopranos, uh, certainly the United States was very openly supportive of the guy who sort of sees the raids after that, and that guy has refused to hold elections. So the United though so Haiti is a country that has been thoroughly shaped by uh by United States influence over the decades. Um so uh if we look at neighboring Haiti, a country I say in the article has been thoroughly shaped by US intervention, Haiti has dystopian levels of poverty and economic inequality, and as I just noted, a government that refuses to hold elections. Uh, so what, and you know, like, God, I mean, as I noted in the Yarvin debate, one of the things in the WikiLeaks cables um, was that uh, the U.S. State Department uh, during Obama's first term, that the Hillary Clinton State Department, uh, successfully lobbied uh, Haiti a Haitian government against raising its minimum wage to the princely sum of $5 a day. Um, and, uh, you know, in fact, whatever, that's that's beyond dispute that we did that. So the United States has thoroughly worked its will in Haiti, and the results have been catastrophic. Uh, so what I want to know is why should anyone take seriously the idea that the United States imposed its will in Cuba would lead to that country being a stable and prosperous liberal democracy. Um, I, uh, yeah, I don't buy it, right? So, uh, uh, just a second. Um, so I suggest at the end of the article that a healthier approach would be to leave the question of any future internal reform to the Cuban people themselves to figure out without any United States meddling to hasten the process along, and certainly without devastating sanctions that punish ordinary Cubans for the flaws in their political system, theoretically, if you buy that motivation. Um, and look, this is not a 
this is not like the idea that we should have normal relations with, with, with Cuba, that we should lift the embargo. This is not some radical socialist idea that only you know crazy people like me have. President Barack Obama took large strides in exactly that direction just before he left office. Um, it, well, actually, you know, I guess a couple, to be fair, I think I do, I do say just before I left office in the article, but I think that's um, a little bit wrong. It was a couple of years before he left office, but, uh, but regardless, right, it was during his second term, President Barack Obama uh, took uh, really large strides in the direction of that healthier, more mobile relationship with Cuba. He couldn't lift the embargo without Congress, but he made a variety of symbolic and substantive moves to normalize relations. Uh, in fact, things had progressed so far along that in 2016, Obama's last year in office, the United States, for the first time ever, obviously, actually abstained on the UN resolution condemning its own embargo on Cuba. Um, Right, 2016 went for, at that point, let me see, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. So this would have been the uh, 24th year in a row that the UN General Assembly uh, nearly unanimously voted to condemn the embargo on Cuba. Um, the United States under Obama actually abstained on that. Right? That's, that's how far things have gone in the direction of Obama trying to steer the ship in a different direction on uh, Cuba relations. Uh, even even though uh, the uh, even though uh, Congress uh, wouldn't uh, you know, wouldn't go along with it, uh, it was, uh, dominated by Republicans. Uh, now Donald Trump reversed course on all of Obama's moves towards normalization when he assumed the presidency in 2017, um, and and he he tightened up the embargo again, uh, and was very aggressive with Cuba. Uh, but then the really depressing thing is that Obama's vice president, Joe Biden, has, since he became president uh, in 2021, has shown very little interest in picking up where his friend Barack left off, just as uh, he has not exactly seemed to be in a hurry to restore Obama's uh, most important diplomatic accomplishment, which was the Iran nuclear deal. Um, so... That is uh, that is where we are right now, right? So, um, so I, you know, I end the article by saying, okay, well, you know, where does uh, where does all of this leave us? Um, and where it seems to be that it leaves us is Cubans are hurting badly, and for the thirtieth year in a row, the rest of the planet has begged us to end this cruel and pointless embargo. It's time to listen. Okay. Um, yeah, so I see Silver in the chat sort of raising the question of, of why we never lifted the embargo. Uh, the fact that Congress wouldn't go along with it is why um, Barack Obama uh, could lift the embargo when he actually wanted to. Um, I think there's a bigger question about why even Joe Biden hasn't really you know, sort of stirred in the direction of picking up where, where Obama left off on Cuba uh, and you know, why the Republicans care. Uh, and some of that, of course, is about electoral politics, uh, that Florida is traditionally a swing state. It's increasingly becoming a red state um, under DeSantis as, as he sort of um, electrifies his culture war base and terrorizes uh, uh, voters uh, with his you know, election police and as he... Um, and as he attracts a lot of people for whom the, the conservative uh, cultural war message 
is appealing from other parts of the country to move to Florida. There's plenty of that during the pandemic. Um, but either way, either as a swing state or as like now something that's more solidly in the Republicans' quarter, I can see why they don't want to alienate the, uh, the Miami Cuban vote. Uh, so that's definitely, uh, that's definitely part of it. But also, I think, you know, I think part of the equation, um, and if anybody does want to call it, you know, call in, this is a, this is a good time. Go ahead and get, you know, get in the queue. But, um, I think another part of the equation is just that Cuba is economically unimportant enough that we can kind of afford to make an example of them, right? Because, Okay, we talked about the recent history with Obama, Trump, Biden, but man, like the, the embargo was, you know, like when the embargo went into effect, John F. Kennedy was president. Uh, so in between Kennedy, um, when the embargo went into effect, and Obama, when there were these sort of moves towards globalization that were never quite completed, uh, we had LBJ as president, Democrat, uh, Nixon. Uh, Republican, although also Frank, you know, I mean, look, Nixon was Republican, but, uh, but he was, um, you know, he might have committed plenty of war crimes in Vietnam and Cambodia, but in terms of great power politics, he was a Kissingerian realist. He was willing to, you know, he was interested in detente with both, with the, the Soviet Union and the opening to China. Uh, so, so he wasn't really a pure Cold Warrior either, uh, despite the atrocities in Southeast Asia. Uh, so LBJ, Democrat, Nixon, um, a pro-detente, uh, Republican. Um, then after Nixon is Gerald Ford, pretty moderate Republican, uh, as Republicans go. Then there's Jimmy Carter, uh, the, uh, you know, the peace guy. Uh, then, uh, okay, there's Ronald Reagan. I guess that one's self-explanatory for eight years. And then there's George H.W. Bush. Uh, for uh, for four years, and then there's Bill Clinton for eight years, and then there's George W. Bush for eight years, and throughout um, throughout that whole throughout that whole period, right? There's not only does the embargo stay in place, but none of those presidents, you know, even seem interested in the possibility of of uh, lifting the embargo. Which actually, I think there was a point where it could have been done in a unilateral way uh, by uh, by the president, I think it's a more recent development that Congress passed laws said you can't change the embargo without congressional approval. Um, but I'm not 100% of the timeline of that part. But yeah, so example of what? What do I mean when I say that like Cuba is relatively unimportant enough that the empire could, could sort of afford to make an example of them without, you know, without really, uh, you know, inflicting a wound on itself economically? Well, what I mean by that is... You know, Cuba, you know, I mean, Noam Chomsky, who I don't think could be accused of, you know, secret sympathy for, uh, you know, for, for authoritarianism or, you know, uh, one party communist rule or anything like that, uh, has, has written about this, the sort of, uh, Washington's fear of a positive example. I mean, if Cuba can, can have a successful socialist revolution, expropriate, uh, all of these, uh, these sugar barons and, uh, they can, and uh, all of these, you know, American gangsters and uh, regular American businessmen, or do I repeat myself, uh, think about the, uh, the Cuba scenes from Godfather 2 uh, there, uh, that like if Cuba could do that and then it works out well for them, then that gives other countries, 
population's ideas, right? It's like, well, hell, why can't we have that? Um, and even in like the Sandinistas in Nicaragua in the 80s, you know, they, they only kind of went so far in that direction and were sort of reluctant to sort of go full Cuba. And, you know, that's probably part of why, right? You know, it's like, look at what's happened to Cuba. And of course, Nicaragua, even without going full Cuba, was already dealing with plenty of that on their own uh, with, uh, with from the Reagan administration. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that it does sort of limit the ambitions of the Latin American left, like that, like, look, uh, look at what an example we've made of Cuba that looks, look at how much we've made them suffer for, uh, for going down, uh, going down this, this path. Uh, as far as Miami Cubans, uh, yeah, the other question was why do Miami Cubans support the embargo, uh, so long after Castro? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know. I used to be more optimistic about this. I mean, I lived in Miami for six and a half years. Uh, that's where, you know, I went to, got you know, my PhD program was the University of Miami, uh, studied philosophy of logic with Otavio Bueno. Uh, and, um, and then I, I came back for a couple of years, um, later. And then I was back again for a one semester sort of fill in gig, uh, back at UM later. And, um, uh, you know, and I used to think, well, okay, sure, the sort of Miami Cuban establishment is like super duper dedicated to to counter revolution and is willing to just you know keep the embargo going forever and ever because they're so obsessed with uh, toppling the Cuban government. Um, you know, even even post Castro, um, but. Um, but then, uh, but then, like, okay, but is that really representative of the Cuban American population in Miami as a whole? And I don't know. Um, I I don't I don't know how good the polling is on that. I will say that you know Miami Dade you know went for Obama in uh, in in like two thousand eight, which uh, and uh, you know I remember being pretty obvious at the time it was going to. Uh, that uh, I, I remember going standing in an early voting line in 2008, and uh, there was um, like the and it was funny, right? People were standing in that line for hours and hours. Uh, so the whole you know the voting was a mess there. Uh, um, but. Um, but in any case, um, the in uh, in that um, in that voting line, right? You know, there were uh, people were passing out bottles of water. There were, were like Democratic volunteers who were passing out bottles of water, which is now, I believe, uh, might be illegal under DeSantis's laws. It's certainly illegal here in uh, in uh, Kemp's Florida. Uh, but uh, but at that point, that was fine. And there were actually some like kind of B-list celebrities uh, who were sort of working the crowd for the Obama campaign to like get people to stay in line. I remember uh, Cynthia Nixon uh, was was actually there. I, I, I met her then. Uh, and uh, uh, what's his name played Felix Leiter in, uh, in the in the new James Bond movies. Uh, he was there. Uh, and then like the so like the Obama campaign was this very well-oiled machine. And the McC the McCain campaign was represented by like three guys with handmade signs saying Cuba got hope and change in 1959. 
and uh, and so it's like okay, one of these one of these forces seems more formidable than the other. And in fact, Obama did win Miami Dade in two thousand eight, but uh, but I believe Trump won uh, Miami Dade uh, both times. Um, you know, 2016 and 2020. So, I mean, there, there might be, it might be that the, you know, population there as a whole, you know, tilts further right than I would have at one time wanted to believe. Um, and, uh, yeah, Kate Dodd in the chat says all those weird Cubans who supported Batista, uh, be, uh, before, um, they came here are always sus to me because they were kind of wealthy, you know, average Cuban uh, when they came here on a boat. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's right. Although I think we do want to differentiate a little bit about different sort of periods of uh, of, of Cuban immigration to Miami. So that when it comes to like the sort of immediate post-revolution wave, that is a hundred percent right. Uh, but then you have later waves of Cubans coming over in, um, you know, the uh, you know Mario Boatlift and you know going into you know more recent decades, where oftentimes uh, people are as much economic migrants as political ones, and the um, you know, like you know, the racial composition is very different, and etc. Right? So, so it's not you know I want to paint with too broad a brush, but uh, we do have a call, so uh, we're we're probably just going to take this one call and then uh, call it a day. We'll be back with David Griscom tomorrow, but let's take Jack. What is on your mind, Jack? Uh, just as a reminder, you got to unmute yourself. That's the little microphone thing at the bottom um, of uh, of your screen or phone or whatever. You should see the um, there's the uh, there are like a few buttons. There's the one that looks like a microphone with a line through it. If you hit that, that'll unmute you. All right. Okay. No problem. Uh, seems like uh, Jack's uh, mic isn't working. So um, we are going to go to uh, Hussein. Ben Burgess, is it? There is, we that, go. is that your name, Ben Ben Burgess? How do you say the last one? You said that correctly. Oh, cool. Okay, so level with me here. Um, it's not like I spent too much time in Miami, but the few times I was there, there's these weird Cubans, like in the 70s, 80s. I, don't, I guess I do know a bit about the Cuban embargo, but they would go off about the Cuban government as they repeat the same things that the American government do. They do exist. Yes, I'm not like living in my bubble. No, for sure. I've had a few conversations with them. They would go off on everything having to do with Cuba and how it's awful that they need that that America needs to invade it. Blah blah blah. And I was like 14, 15. I was only yeah. there for soccer tournaments. So I'd just sit there and laugh. I'm like, I don't think you're you understand too much political life in Cuba. I know you've been away for a really long time. It's probably you probably don't know how things work there now. And they tell me about Batista. Do you know anything about this Batista kid or this Batista person who used to rule Cuba that they praise all the time when I when I had these few conversations? Yeah, I mean I know I, I know some. Uh you know, it's uh you know, I mean, I mean this is this is a this is pretty twisted uh to uh uh this this is pretty twisted to uh to to praise you know to praise this figure. I mean this this like right wing dictator you know before the Cuban revolution. He was he was a dictator. That that well, I, I haven't read too much on him, but I don't know exactly in and out of his government's working. But I I think they do write 
um, the papers do portray him as a dictator, which seems to be pretty factual and not like propaganda, actually. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, so we should we should say uh, so. Um, uh, so Batista, somebody who was originally a Cuban uh, military officer, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and he, uh, I, I, you know, I'm looking at some stuff online here, just kind of refresh my memory on some of this. You know, it looks like he was elected at one point in the 40s, but he he ruled as a military dictator from uh, from 52 to uh, to 59, um, and uh, and originally. Um, uh, originally came to power the the very first time as uh, part of uh, something called the uh, Revolt of the Sergeants in uh, in uh, in nineteen uh, in nineteen uh, nineteen thirty three, right. uh, and and so yeah, I mean, look, this is this is one of the reasons that you know, I mean, it's certainly in terms of that kind of original wave of um, of Cuban immigration to to Miami when we are talking about people who who actually did support the Batista regime. I mean, these are the people, you know, with all the criticisms that I would agree with, right? As uh, you know, as about like the, the flaws in Cuba's current system. But even with all those criticisms, this is why, from these guys in particular, it's hardest to take seriously the idea that you know support for democracy is really the issue because uh, Cuba was not a democracy before the revolution in '59, and so what we're really comparing are uh, are two. Um, you know, two two dictatorships, one of which uh, was allied with the United States and these sort of giant, you know, sugar growers and, you know, this this like very, like very unequal, very oligarchic, you know, kind of country. And the other of which uh, actually redistributed wealth to, you know, give everybody health care and, you know, it had this massive literacy programs, et cetera. It's like, I don't know, man, if I, uh, you know, I mean, obviously I would prefer socialist democracy, but if I'm, I'm going to take a, you know, but if you're going to get, you know, some kind of, uh, some kind of undemocratic uh, government either way, I will take that second one. But I do want to go back to, uh, I do want to go back to, to Jack because, because I kind of kicked him out earlier because it didn't seem like his mic was working. So let's see if, uh, if that is working now. Uh, Jack. All right. It looks like you unmuted yourself, but I don't hear you. Oh no. <laughs> okay. Uh, I guess for whatever reason that's not working. He was unmuted, but uh, but I can't hear him. Uh, my apologies, uh, Jack. If you can figure this out, uh, I will take you at the beginning of tomorrow's show. Uh, but uh, I think we are going to uh, cut it there for today. So again, the article, if you want to read it. Uh, is uh, is called uh, Why the Hell Haven't We Ended the Cuban Embargo Already? That is the Daily Beast. Uh, check uh, check that out. Uh, Going to be back on tomorrow with David Griscom to talk a little Texas politics. Should be a lot of fun. I will see you then. Left